again. If you would, please turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4, verse 5. Philippians 4, verse 5. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Father, let these words do their work in us who believe. Let them work their way into our hearts and our relationships. For Lord Jesus, you are near. Let us walk in your nearness to the glory of your name. And thus help me now then teach this. Unfold what's here. Unfold this beautiful, sanctifying command to the glory of your name and the health of your body on this earth. Amen and amen. So remember, in this letter, Paul now has begun a string of commands. First to the two women, get along. Then to the two women and to all the church, the rest, rejoice in the Lord. And now, verse 5, to everybody. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The verb, to know, passive here. Let something be known. It's in the imperative mood, the mood of command. Let it be known. That's what we're commanded let something be known. That's church. That's church life. That's what it is to be a Christian. Be known for something. Now, for what? The answer is epiakis. That's the Greek word here. Be known for epiakis. And the reason that I do that with the Greek word this morning is important because this word has a, a, a richer meaning than, than any single English word can convey. And that's why if you take out even just the main English translations, you'll see a wide variety of ways they translate this one word, epiakis. The King James Version translates it moderation. Let your moderation be known. The NIV translates it gentleness. Let your gentleness be known. The New American Standard Bible translates it, forbearing spirit, 
Let your forbearing spirit be known. ESV, of course, you can see it. Your reasonableness. New King James Version. Let your gentleness be known. The old RSV translates it. Let all men know your forbearance. And then there are commentators who write commentaries and get paid to do that. And commentators do their own translation as they're doing a commentary. And here's the various ways many commentators have translated or paraphrased this word. Sweet reasonableness. Generosity. Goodwill. Friendliness. Grace toward the faults of others. Indulgence of the failures of others. Leniency. Or big-heartedness. And those are just some of the attempts to capture the rich meaning of epiakis. One major commentator on Philippians, Peter O'Brien, because they look at this word in other literature and how it's often used, particularly in very difficult circumstances at the hands of others. So O'Brien writes, quote, The context of ill treatment, torture, and even disgraceful death strongly suggests that epiachus here signifies a humble, patient steadfastness, which is able to submit to injustice disgrace, and maltreatment without hatred or malice, trusting God in spite of it all. So this word here that we're commanded to be known for this, it's the exact opposite of a spirit of contention and self-seeking. So I think in that sense, when the NIV translates it, gentleness it gets to the point. In other words, in your relations with others, be consciously careful how you deal with the other person. That leads you to be more gentle. Now, in translating from one language to any other language, some of you are bilingual, you know this with Spanish and, and, and with English, it's often very difficult to find one word in the receptor language to match the one word from the original language. So maybe the best corresponding English word might be something like graciousness. It's broader than gentleness. It includes gentleness in that idea. Or, or maybe something like, let the graciousness of humility be known about you. In other words, the, the humble graciousness that, that, that therefore what produces patience to endure mistreatment, things that irritate you, 
without becoming vindictive or retaliating or allowing bitterness to grow in you. And thus, there's a sense in which, believer, let all of that which is going to produce in the midst of what could be heated circumstances in you retaliating, let it produce in you by the Spirit contentment. Don't lose your mind and ability now to, to be reasonable. So, so the NIV's gentleness, the way they translate it, and the ESV translates it, it seems like very, seems like very different. Reasonableness, it seems to make sense when you think about it, right? We all as sinners know that it is just amazing that when we are just utterly self-seeking in that moment, in that relationship where, where it produces in us impatience, and defensiveness, how when that happens, we don't slow down and reason with the other. But we often just barge in like a bull in a china closet and try to overrun the other person emotionally with our emotions or even, or even with our intellect. Just logic them to death. And the whole point is, that is anything but reasonableness at that moment. Paul's point is, be humble. Be gentle. Be reasonable in your relations with others. Now, one other commentator, the New Testament scholar D.A. Carson in his commentary on Philippians, he says that maybe we should translate this or really paraphrase this, something like this. Be known for being self-effacing. You know how you take a coin, you want to efface a coin, here's Washington's image there, and you just rub and rub and do that for a long enough time, you'll be able to efface that coin. He won't be on the coin anymore. In other words, what Carson is driving at is that be known for a person who doesn't stick out. You're self-effacing. You don't, in other words, take yourself so blasted seriously. Humility breeds gentleness Toward the other, because your driving desire is not, I want to be the center right now. I want to be known. But you're instead self-effacing. See, one thing about yearning, just so desperate to be known and recognized in any given situation, by its definition, rules out being known for being self-effacing. Oh, go back to high school and, and even us older people. What do you want to be known for? Good looks, the best dressed, quick wit, humor. Or you know, God's given you a gift here. And 
of wisdom. I want to be known for my wisdom or for my wealth. Or I want to be known and recognized for my prayer life. I want to be known for my intellect. Or I want to be known for my preaching. Paul wants us to feel the, the innate disposition toward pride. Be, be known. Be known for something. Be, be known for humility that doesn't seek to be praised, but seeks to be gracious towards others. Paul cuts to the heart of the issue. Let your gentle graciousness of humility toward others be known. More than everything else. In other words, let that be known, not your giftings. They're going to be known, but the point is, you've got to get see my gifts. Not your skills, not your accomplishments. That's much of sanctification. See, these kinds of self-centered sins get very tricky. Now, I'm going to, give, I'm going to quote somebody for a moment, and I'm going to tell you, you would think he must have written this in the last 10 years in the internet age of Christianity. But he didn't. A.W. Tozer wrote this 75 years ago. Quote, To be specific, the self-sins are these. Self-righteousness. Self-pity. Self-confidence. Self-sufficiency, self-admiration, and a host of others like them. They dwell too deep within us and are too much a part of our natures to come to our attention until the light of God is focused upon them. The grosser manifestations of these sins, egotism, exhibitionism, self-promotion, are strangely tolerated in Christian leaders, even in circles of impeccable orthodoxy, promoting self under the guise of promoting Christ is currently, in the 40s, so common as to excite little notice. And that's scary because it means it's so easy to mistake the genuine movement of the Holy Spirit for counterfeits. The gifts of the Spirit are tools of the Holy Spirit to minister through one to another or others. That's what they are. Gifts, abilities, skills, used by the Spirit in the body of Christ, are tools. They are not evidences of the person's spiritual maturity. They're not. 
pay attention to church history and you'll realize it. That's true of every preacher. Wow! That was such a powerful message. He spoke with such penetrating eloquence. Therefore, he must really be walking closely with Jesus. Therefore, he must really be a holy man and humble. No, not necessarily. Maybe. But just, just because I have a gift to teach, and even this morning, teaching against pride doesn't say anything necessarily about my heart. The same is true with all the gifts. The gift of service. Always there to help. The gift of helps. The gift of the word of knowledge. The gift of wisdom. The gift of counseling. The gift of prophecy. Gifts are tools that the Holy Spirit uses to help others. They are not evidences of a person's spiritual maturity. One of the tests that can be applied in order for us to constantly look in the mirror of the Word of God to determine whether the sanctifying work of the Spirit is, is, is in process and happening in us. It's, it's one test, and that is this, to observe to what degree we are making it our aim to be known for dealing with people in a spirit of self-effacing gentleness. It's in that way that we are being formed to the image of Christ. That was Paul's point a few paragraphs earlier, wasn't it, in chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, where he tells all of us Christians, have this mindset. Think this way. Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, is God, the Creator. He did not count that equality with God a thing to be grasped. But instead, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. And therefore, Paul says now, Christians, this humility, this epiachus is essential in your pursuit of Christ. And therefore he says, here's the command, be known for that. Philippians chapter 4, verse 5. It's said again by Paul. I want you to turn over there for a moment. Ephesians 4, 1 to 6. 
Where Paul, I think here, what he's doing, he unfolds it. He broadens the context of this command. Be known for Epiacus. He broadens it so that we can see how it individually speaks to us as each of us are called to life in the local church. Starting with verse 1, Ephesians 4. I therefore... A prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk, meaning live your life, in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. What do you mean, Paul? Here it is. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all believers. So he says, be be eager, verse 3, to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Okay, Paul, how do we do that? Verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience. Bearing with one another in love. In other words, if if you're humble at that moment, you're going to be gentle. And if you're patient at that moment, you're going to have more capability to put up with me and others. And it'll cause you To be a peacemaker, a preserver of unity. Now what Paul is saying there in Ephesians 4 is not be wishy-washy when it comes to truth. It's not what he's saying. He can't be saying that. Because just a few sentences later in verses 13 and 14... He says, until we all attain the unity of the doctrine, the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of Doctrine, lots of strange, wrong doctrines float around. By human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. No, Paul's point as he goes on is to grow up doctrinally. Never, therefore, confuse true humility with no backbone whatsoever concerning true biblical Christian 
doctrine. True humility. His point is this. It is a demeanor toward the truth and a demeanor toward other human beings. Boy, Easy it is in church life for those two not to come together. No wonder Paul said, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. It's one thing to know the truth. It's another thing to know there's another human being in front of you that you want to communicate what you know. It is the manner in which we deal with real other people within the church and outside of the church. Be known for Epiakis. In other words, in relations with others, we, should, we have to pursue it. It doesn't come naturally. We want to be a person who goes into that relationship, that conversation, right now, with the attitude, I am not the center of the universe. God is. His truth is. And then, as Paul has already said in this letter to the Philippians, consider the other is more important at this moment than yourself. None of us define what it means for us to get along in unity for me. God defines that in Scripture. And, and there is a goal that's outside of us as believers. But there's a way in which we deal with one another in trying to correct and help one another in that and encourage one another in that. Okay. Be known for that. Now, back in Philippians 4. Verse 5, Paul goes on and he gives us a specific reason why we should obey this command. Let your reasonableness, your, your gracious humility, let that be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Literally, the Lord is near. That's the reason. As we sang it this morning. Now that, what does it mean? It, could, it, could, it has two possible meanings that both make sense in this context. Paul, do you mean the Lord is near temporally? In time? Could be. Second option is, do you mean He is near, right now, spatially? First, so I'm going to give them both, and they're both biblical elsewhere. Near temporally, in time, in other words, means something like, be known for this, believers. Every one of you, be known for this. You want to know why? Because... He's coming back soon. It could be tonight. 
in light of that, live this way. Notice, how would you like to be found living if you knew within 24 hours you're going to meet Jesus personally in his resurrection? What do you want to be known for? That's biblical. Actually, the Apostle John, listen to how he talks about the Christian life of sanctification here. In 1 John 3, verses 2 to 3, he writes, And what we will be has not yet appeared. Future resurrection. But we know something. We know that when He, Jesus, appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. Okay, there's a truth. Now, listen to the next sentence. And everyone who thus hopes, in other words, that truth there drives your daily life, Everyone who thus hopes in Him that way, something's happening right now in your life, purifies Himself as He is pure. The Lord may appear in the clouds in the next 24 hours. Now go talk to that brother or sister. But the second option, which I actually lean toward is that the Lord is near spatially. In other words, he's saying, the Lord is present in you by the Spirit. The Lord is personally with you. Be known for gracious humility, not arrogance. The Lord is not far away on some trip. He's very near. Therefore, how could we, in His presence, be participating in arrogant self-promotion? In other words, in all of your interactions with people, the one you're married to, friends, church life, picture yourself with them in that conversation and the Lord Jesus is sitting on the couch right there. How would you promote yourself then? How would you speak to the other person then? Jesus sat there and look over and you see his nail scarred hand. I would think for any true believer, it would be really hard to try to exalt yourself. Your thoughts, your self-righteousness over the other person in that room. Be known for Epiakis, the Lord is near. That's Paul's point. Lord Jesus is present always by His Spirit. Let your reasonableness 
be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Let's turn to one more passage where I think Paul unfolds Philippians chapter 4 verse 5 again. And that's Colossians chapter 3. I'll be reading chapter 3, verse 9 through 17. I have a lot of confidence. Paul, come on, man. We struggle these years later. How are you meaning the word? Here you go. Verse 9. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self, the old man, with its practices, and you have put on the new self, which is in process, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, in that place, Christian, Plucked out of darkness, born again out of spiritual death. Here, there is not Greek in Jew. Circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free person. But Christ is all. And in all, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. Put on kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be grateful, be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another In all wisdom, singing psalms and singing hymns and singing spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything. In the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. 
Let your epiachus be known. Just go back again to verse 11 for a moment. Here, in the kingdom, in this present dark, evil world, being one of many, whom Jesus has plucked out. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free person. But instead, in the body, Christ is everything. And He is in all of us believers. There is no division in Christ between black persons and white persons or brown persons or Asian persons or purple or blue. We all, as being in Christ, have a mark on us. And that mark is the call to stop the things in which we would ever boast over others. Christians do not boast in their race or their ethnicity or their language or their class status or their culture or their intellect or their superior giftings. What do you have that you did not receive? And why therefore do you act as if you didn't receive it as a gift? No, for believers, their boasting, Paul says, is that Christ is all and in all believers. There are only two groups in the world. The church and those who at this moment remain lost. That's what brings people together from every background. Every family of origin. Every ethnicity, color of skin. How stupid that concept. And why? Because he says it in why in verse 12. That's why they're brought together. Put on then as God's chosen ones. Holy and beloved. Put on compassionate hearts. Put on kindness, put on humility, meekness, and patience. And so, how? Walk in with Christ. Give you an assignment. For the next two weeks, 14 straight days, 
make sure you do not set your alarm clock early, but only in time to rush out of bed and in the shower and grab what you need to go and go do your day. Make no time for God. Make no time for the Bible. No time for prayer. No time for introspection in the presence of the Lord. Don't make any time at lunch. Don't make time when you get home. Don't make any time in, in, in the evening and do that day after day after day for 14 days and hire somebody to videotape you all day long in your interactions in the office, the workplace, on a job site, at home, with a spouse, with kids for two weeks and see how well you do and what you're known for. Okay. Then the next two weeks, do the opposite. Wake up with plenty of time before you have to leave the house. Spend with the Lord, introspection, the Word of God, prayer, oh, begging for his, his presence throughout that day. Spend some time at lunch. Spend more time after you get home and do that for two weeks and videotape yourself and how you deal with other people and what you're being known for. Okay, really don't do the first one. We're going to turn now to the table of the Lord for all of us who have been baptized. Because as we turn to the Lord, what we're, what we're celebrating again and again is that Christ, our Lord, our Savior, died for our process of being known for the graciousness of humility. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for that great hope. For those who thus hope, we look and long for the return of your Son, the resurrection of our bodies, stripped of all of our sinfulness that you have in your providence left us to battle. We thank you for this. We thank you that that good work that you began in all of us who are born again, you will without fail complete it until the day of your son's return. Amen.